one of the things that I've said, uh, some folks throughout interviews I've done for this book and a previous one asked me, um, is there, are you optimistic about the future of the internet? Um, like, are, and I, yeah, yeah. It's the easy answer. The easy answer is no, for a lot of reasons. Like, I think, I think there's a lot to be pessimistic about, frankly, regarding like, it just doesn't seem to be getting, our relationship with the internet doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot better. Like I've seen glimmers of hope. Um, like maybe people not piling on so quickly in as in certain areas or, or things like that. Um, but the thing that, that is most encouraging to me is that, so we, we've been, been living in a situation in which the, the adults in the room don't understand how the internet foundationally works. podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming and I am your host and today on our show we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Who's worse? The person who presents a perfect life online but they live really a life of anxiety and shame or the person who presents a perfectly put together, good Christian life at church, but rants and raves and makes all these posts online in increasingly problematic ways. Well, it's a trick question. They're both bad and actually just the opposite ends of the same spectrum. And all of them are forming us. It's not too far off to say that we don't so much use social media as social media is using us. I mean, you've heard the expression, if the service is free, then where's the product? Well, you're the product. Today, our social media usage is actually discipling us. It's true. It's forming us how to think, how we go about it, what we value, what we go after, the image that we want to portray to other people. There's no way around it. So what are we to do? Are we to simply drop out to be Amish or Luddites and simply just put technology away? Do we use it carefully? I mean, can we even use it carefully? How much is it affecting you? Let me ask you that question. I, I can't tell you how many people that I see that sign off and they say, hey, I'm out. I need to just take a break for a while, having a social media fast. And I think that's a great way of going about it. But I don't think that's the only way. I think for many of us, we don't know how to disconnect, especially those who are actually trying to make a living using social media in their lives. And that's increasingly becoming more prevalent. That's why I've invited our guest onto the show today. It is author and social media insider, Chris Martin. Chris has been writing about tech since he was in high school and he covered the release, the very first iPhone for his high school paper. Now, for some of you out there, you're going to say, wow, he's just a kid. Others are saying, wow, he's super old. No matter where you come at it and in this conversation, we do know that it is affecting every single one of us. And Chris has run, actually, social media for two different Christian publishers, and he has become a keen observer and participant since the earliest days of social media. He has a very insightful take, and I trust you are going to be blessed because of it. He's written a book called The Wolf in Their Pockets. I mean, that's a pretty appropriate title. And that book takes a hard and real biblical look at some of the ways we are allowing the social internet to shape us. This is a fascinating and important conversation and one that you are not going to want to miss because, again, this is where we all live. Now, I want you to take a moment and imagine. Imagine that you'd never heard of the internet. Imagine that you come into a country that's never had it, or you're coming to America from a country that is pretty primitive. Say you're one of those Amazonian tribes that has never had contact with people on the outside. And now you find yourself entering into this world and it's overwhelming. You're trying to discern and understand what all of this is, what people are talking about. I mean, it would be really exhausting trying to simply try to forward through these harsh streams. I want us to think that way because as we increasingly look at our very ever-changing world, we need to know how to share Christ and live for Christ in the middle of it. 
We need to show a better idea of what it means to be human, which means we need to find the space to rest, to disconnect, to show that this doesn't have the complete power over us. That's why we need to show that we are under another authority and that we're not tied to the tyranny of technology. Now, this conversation can happen because of you. Yes, you. It's because of you. We want to create content that helps you water your world where you're at, that helps you in your walk with Jesus, that helps you walk in peace and in freedom and in victory. And these conversations can't happen without your involvement. We need to raise an additional $4,000 each month in order to make this happen. That's why we're looking for new watering partners. How do you become a watering partner? Well, simply click the link in your show notes and up on your screen will come up several different amounts. Simply just pick the amount that works for you, whether it's a one-time gift or becoming a monthly partner. We are simply delighted that you are partnering with us to help water the world for Jesus. Now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Chris Martin. Happy listening. Chris Martin, welcome to Apollo's Water. Thanks for having me. You were getting ready to take a drink just as I asked you the question, weren't you? I was, but it's fine. <laughs> Are you ready for the Fast Five? I am. Okay, here we go. This is an easy one. Favorite restaurant when you were a kid? That's an easy one. Well, not really. I got to think back to what did I like eating when I was a kid? It's usually uh, McDonald's. Was it, it has to be like McDonald's. I, mean, I didn't really like McDonald's that much. Um, right. Yeah. I, man, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is um, I loved Papa John's pizza when I was a kid. I still do. Uh, but like, I, I love Papa John's pizza when I was a kid. So that was probably one of my favorites to be sure. Um, and then I actually, I think I like Burger King more than McDonald's, honestly. Uh, but what's funny is like, I didn't start liking burgers till like middle school. So I was like a chicken nugget kid till I was like 14. <laughs> um, I remember always joking, like, why do they call this place Burger King? Burgers are gross. They should, you know, call it chicken King or something like that. Um, cause I just ate chicken nuggets at all those places. But, uh, yeah. So I think Papa John's pizza, uh, was, was definitely like, my dad didn't really like it. And so we, whenever he would travel for business, I would like beg my mom, like, can we get Papa John's? Cause dad's going out of town. <laughs> did so, you get yeah. the garlic? Did you get that garlic butter sauce? Oh yeah. 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 And mm -hmm. I like, I never really liked getting sausage on pizza other places, but I loved getting it there. And so that's mm -hmm. what I would always want is like sausage pizza. But yeah. Yeah. I, so. I just want to, I just want the garlic butter. I'll take yeah. that with anything. I mean, that's yeah, just, sure. It's I did up when I was plastic, in, but. Yeah. When I was, when I was in high school, I was working at a, I worked at like a mom and pop pizza place. And that's when I like learned what real garlic butter was. And I was like, Oh man, <laughs> this is actually real garlic butter. Not like the hydrogenated peanut oil. At, uh, at like, <laughs> Don't ruin but, it for me. Don't but it's still good. No, no, no. Hey, look, it's, there's literally one, there's, there's one, probably a seven minute walk and a, and a 30 second drive from our house. So when we want cheap pizza, that's what we get. And I still eat that stuff. Come on. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> well, it's pizza. It's like, how, it's like, how bad is your pizza craving? That's the other yeah, thing. Like right, certain pizzas right. you're like, hate that pizza. I'm really I'm, I maintain it's the best fast food pizza. Um, I asked, I, I have a newsletter called the funnies that delivers every Saturday, which is like a collection. It's meant to be like a modern day uh, Sunday funny section in a newspaper. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's like a collection of funny tweets and memes and stuff like that. And there are a couple thousand people subscribed to it. And I asked them in a poll recently, out of all these fast food pizza places, which one is your favorite? And I was proud of my audience because all couple hundred people that responded, um, the most popular was Papa John's. And I agree. Like I, I, my opinion is still that I like Papa John's better than Pizza Hut or Domino's or the, or the others. Domino's came in a close second, I think. Uh, hmm. But yeah, anyway, so oh, random pizza that, opinions. <laughs> but I like to, I like to hear what people are doing and, even the fact that you surveyed people, that makes it kind of fun for me to know well, what other people. Yeah. Every week I ask a random poll question at the top of the uh, funnies. And that was the one I thought of that week. So, hmm. All right. Well, here's the next question. Because you are, according to your book, you are the content editor, right? So content marketing editor. I don't know exactly what content marketing means, but I think I have an idea. But here's my question. Marketing to me means what? Um. 
kind of dictionary, like if I were to give a dictionary definition for it, and then maybe more of a personal spin marketing to me, when I think of marketing, I think of, um, explaining to someone why they should pay for something. And that you think money right away, but I don't even, I don't even necessarily think that I think marketing is basically, um, making your case it's persuasive it's making your case for why someone should pay your your podcast attention why someone should buy your pizza over someone else's why someone should um watch your tv program over someone else's uh, marketing it, at its core because we all have a limited amount of resources of attention of money or or whatever that we have to make decisions of how we spend these resources that we have and um, marketing is basically saying, spend your time, money, eyeballs, whatever on this thing instead of that other thing. Um, and so I think at its core, that's kind of what marketing is. Now, marketing has a number of layers to it. I didn't go to school for marketing. So anything I know about marketing, I just learned from doing on my own, uh, kind of in, in the field. Uh, I went to school for, for Bible and ministry. Um, but content marketing, and this gets into my, my more personal spin, content marketing is like, is like the first impression of marketing. So I, I've never really liked selling anything. I, I think in some ways, I, my mom's always said that I could be a good salesperson and I might be, you know, maybe I could sell cars or whatever, but I don't like selling. I don't like telling people what to do with their money or whatever. So I've, I've never been interested in being like a book marketer, for example, like, like the person who tries to go out and get people to buy books. Um, However, content marketing has always been incredibly interesting to me because what content marketing is, is it offers content at like the very, very top. If you want to think of like a marketing funnel where the bottom of the funnel is where someone decides to purchase something, um, the top of the funnel is where you kind of first even learn that that thing exists that maybe one day you'll buy. Content marketing is like, instead of, hey, come buy this thing, it's more, let me demonstrate to you why this thing is so cool and why this thing is so helpful or whatever. And so historically, my, my almost my whole career has been in content marketing for now two different Christian publishers, first Lifeway and now um, Moody. But how content marketing, how marketing has played itself out in my life is not selling books or selling something, but more so like I run a website today called BibleToLife.com that's full of like 700 articles 90% of which are excerpts from books that we've published over the last hundred years. And those are little sections of books that unless you read those books, you would have never come across and learned about that particular thing from that particular author. And so that's content marketing in that I'm providing a piece of content that's incredibly valuable in and of itself. That's helpful for whoever comes across it, can serve them, bless them, encourage them in one way or another. And if they come and read that article and leave and never buy the book, I don't care because we've blessed them with the content that's been sitting on our shelf for a hundred years and they've been blessed by that in a way they wouldn't have otherwise. No, that's actually, but it's actually an awesome answer. I, I think it helps. It, one of the things that your book talks about, and we're going to get to that in a minute is just the narcissism that breeds. I mean, even with marketing, it, that's one of the things that I hate doing the ministry that we do. It's like, this seems to be counterintuitive to what the gospel teaches us. I hear it's like promotion of self, the personality, the conflict, all the things that you're, we're going to delve into in just a moment. But the lifestyle that Jesus advocates is the quiet, the humility, the peaceful, the, and, and it seems to be the opposite. Um, and that's so why, that's why I like, I'll go, I'll, yeah, like I'll go, I'll go on a hundred podcasts like this before I'll send a hundred tweets, even though the hundred tweets would take me a 10th of the effort because um, this is actually going to be helpful and interesting for someone. Mm -hmm. Um, even if they never go buy my book, I don't care. It's been interesting and helpful. Whereas if I just tweet like, Hey, please go buy my book. It's just like, uh, I just feel weird. You know, like, I just mm -hmm. feel weird about that. There's not, I don't think there's anything implicitly wrong with that. I just feel weird. Um, so that's where like, this is content marketing for my book. It's even content marketing for your ministry. Um, mm -hmm. and it, it, because it's providing a value and a service for someone expecting nothing in return, you know, mm -hmm. that's, a, well, yes, is right. I just never heard of the term content marketing. Cause it's yeah. me. I mean, sure. Um, but now I'm, I know that my, my marketing director is going to be talking about this with me because it's my <laughs> wife. Um, but let's go to the next question. Number three, because you are in tech a lot and you're online quite a bit, especially with all the stuff that you talk about, if you could meet one tech person and interview him or her, it would be who and why? It'd be living or dead. Either way. Steve Jobs. 
kind of figured. Yeah, there, there's no question. Yeah. What would you want to ask him? Um, why did you suck so much though? Uh, like, <laughs> um, sorry if that's inappropriate for the podcast. No, it's um, actually pretty much appropriate for the show. <laughs> uh, no, because like the dude was like, I mean, like, like in the like in the Mount Rushmore of most revolutionary people in the history of the world in some respect, like in just in terms of technology and how he thought about technology, at least in the top five most important Americans ever to live. Maybe, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably, maybe that's too high, but like just in terms of like, yeah, in terms of thinking outside the box and pushing the bounds of what we think could even be real, just otherworldly, but also just such a terrible person to people. All right. Here's the next question. The current trend right now I could do without you could do without would be what and why current trend. Oh my gosh. Like in everything. Oh my word. Um, Current trend. Um, Those stand, those darn Stanley water cups, man. You ever seen this? No. Oh my gosh. There are going to be a handful of people listening who either just like groaned in admiration of what I just said, or like throwing (laughs) their giant Stanley water cups at me. Just Google like Stanley water cup and you'll, I don't know if you'll know what I'm saying, but they're endlessly popular right now, especially among young women. Um, and it's like, it's, I've seen a joke online. That's like every, every few years, a new water bottle comes around that convinces young women that they're finally going to drink the water they need to, or something like that. And it's like a joke. And my wife is like, yeah, you're, you're right. That's, that's right. Um, but yeah, I, I just, there's so, it's, they're it's so just like pervasive. A travel mug with the straw in it. Yeah, dude. But they're so like, it's one of those things that exploded like a year ago because of a bunch of Instagram influencers. And then everybody got them because it was like trendy. And now everyone has them to the point that it's like cringe. Does that make sense? I don't know. <laughs> oh yes. Um, so that, that's oh. that I, uh, I won't carry my wife's Stanley cup into church. <laughs> It's I'll not, carry that her sounds purse. like a hockey thing. I'll, like I'll a carry, Stanley Cup. I know, I know, I know. I'll <laughs> carry her purse. I'll carry our daughter. I, will, I said, no, you're carrying that cup. I don't want to be seen with that. <laughs> I'm so, it's so petty. It's so petty. <laughs> well, how about this one? How about this? This isn't one of the questions, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you want to, okay. would you take a metal straw or one of those, those cardboard ones that they've been <laughs> yes. using to replace the plastic ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Probably one of the cardboard ones, even oh. though both are reprehensible to me, mostly because I'm going to drink the drink fast enough that the cardboard ones, I don't, I'm not going to let like, I'm not going to let a drink sit there for like so long because I've used cardboard straws before to the point that they don't disintegrate, but it gets kind of like to the point where it's like, okay, this is a bit much. Um, whereas the metal straw, yeah, I know the metal, the metal straw, like I get, I almost get goosebumps thinking about it. Like it's like nails on a chalkboard for me, putting my teeth on a metal straw. Mm. Ugh, I just, I had to have one of those like little silicone things on the end, but I guess that kind of maybe kills the point for someone like your wife. Who's like, no, the whole point is to get away from that. See, uh, I would just take the top off whatever it is and drink. Yeah. It. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I'm like, what yeah. is wrong? Okay. I'm not a big straw guy generally. So I'm not either. I'm not either. But number five. All right. Here's the last one. You can't use your own here. This is just a caveat, but here it is. If you could be a website, you would be what website? And why? Oh gosh, such an abstract such an exist- question. Yeah, existential. Uh, what kind of website would I want to be? Um, man, I mean, like Wikipedia is pretty amazing. Mm. I mean, you, you know, mm, I don't use Wikipedia one. like a ton, but if you think about like the fact that Wikipedia exists and is free is kind of like a marvel of of the internet and of like humanity. Like the fact that we can go to this place. That's like a reference library for a compendium of all, all like human knowledge is just like wild that that exists. Um, like a lot of us, you know, it's easy to like rag on Wikipedia or, or whatever, especially if you're like, Hey, don't use it to cite, you know, don't cite Wikipedia in your papers. You know? uh, <laughs> or journalist like, articles. <laughs> but it, but it's great as a jumping off point of like, oh, you want to you want to learn about this random subject? Go to the citations in Wikipedia and you can find like a hundred really great articles. Um, and yeah, uh, I think I think we don't appreciate Wikipedia enough. So I guess that's my I think that's a great website and I wish I used it more. Okay, well, here we go. 
let's jump into talking a little bit about you and the book. We're going to talk about your book, The Wolf in Their Pockets. But before we do, a little bit of your biography, who you are, when you came to faith, some of your family story, and how in the world did you ever come to be a content marketing editor and doing a website? I mean, you do termsofsurface.social, and you um, you also mentioned the bibletolife.com. I mean, how did you get into that? This is far more interesting than in my book anyway. So um, <laughs> the... Uh, so I, I was born and raised in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, which is up in the North. Most people haven't heard of Fort Wayne, which is understandable, but it is the second largest city in, in Indiana. I don't clocking in around 300,000 people, I think. Um, so I was born and raised there. Um, it's, you know, it's an hour South of Michigan, 15 minutes West of the Ohio border, couple, uh, couple hours North of Indy there, up in the, in the corner, um, was born, uh, to my parents, Joe and Catherine, uh, my mom worked in a doctor's office for a while when I was a kid. Um, she was an ENT specialist, speech therapist. My dad worked for IBM. Um, so that's, that's actually super significant as you can imagine to my life in a lot of ways. Um, my dad worked for IBM. He, he went to Purdue university, got a computer science degree, um, and started working for IBM in like the early eighties. Um, mm. and so he, you know, he was working at IBM when IBM was like the household name like a lot of like Facebook is today, you know, like a lot of yeah. tech companies you hear talked about today in the eighties and nineties, IBM was one of those. Um, it still is kind of a household name, but they do a lot more business kind of stuff now than consumer product stuff. So, um, but yeah, in the eighties and nineties, IBM was like a, a massive kind of was one of the computer companies. And he actually, I was born in 1990. He started working from home in like 1992 or three. Hmm. So, uh, in fact, we have like the newspaper clipping. I post it on social every once in a while where like the local newspaper in Fort Wayne came and did a story on my dad because they were doing a broader story on an increasing number of people were working for, they were like a million people across the country are working from home. Isn't that crazy? They're like, Joe Martin has a, his son, Christopher can sit on his lap while he takes phone calls. And he even has a second phone line to take phone calls. Um, <laughs> And it's like, it's so funny because it's like my dad in like a, in like a shirt and tie sitting at a desk in our like converted dining room in our house. And like, he did not wear dress clothes in our house when he was working. <laughs> <laughs> um, or like the same worn out Nike t-shirt and khaki shorts. Like, um, but, uh, but yeah, so I grew up with a, a mom who ended up stopping working when my, when my brother was born in 93 and my dad working from home for IBM virtually my whole life until I graduated. And so, um, my parents were always around. I could never get in trouble even if I wanted to. And my dad worked for a massive computer company. So we always had computers like right when they came out, like, you know, like mm -hmm. windows 95 came out and we had an IBM computer with, with Windows 95 on it, like the day it came out or whatever. You know, I was, I was not even in first grade or kindergarten. And I remember tinkering around with it as young as first grade when a couple of my friends maybe had home computers. Went elementary school, middle school, got to high school, started writing a lot in late middle school, early high school, really started to fall in love with writing. Well, first of all, I went to communications magnet school for elementary school. And so like mm. first grade through fifth grade, I had Spanish uh, all every year. Uh, we had a TV studio in our school. So like we were learning how to work cameras and teleprompters and stuff like that. Um, and we had a school newspaper, which maybe is more common today, but back then I think it was kind of a feature of our communications magnet school. And so I remember like writing for our little school newspaper when I was in fourth and fifth grade and um, doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And I really fell in love with that kind of thing as early as then. And then middle school, I started um, writing a blog actually in eighth grade on live journal. Um, that blog still exists, uh, believe it or not. And no, you cannot have the link. Um, but, uh, it's quite embarrassing, but I am glad it still exists. Cause it's kind of like a, a relic of my first writing on, on the internet. Um, in high school, I have to mention this because it's super formative to why I even write it all today. Um, my freshman year, I was put in an experimental thing they were trying called an English keyboarding block. And so I had English and then I had a typing class where we would learn how to type, which kind of even felt a little dated in 2005, but because I had been typing online for years at that point, but I had never been like taught how to type. And so um, 
we were using like typing software to learn how to type more efficiently, which probably did help me. I still don't, I don't sit on home row or whatever, like they taught us, but, um, but we, what it was, it was kind of like this crucible of writing. Like I had an amazing freshman and he was my, so we did the same thing sophomore year, but he was my, he was an amazing teacher. His name is Mr. Hauser. He's the principal now, which like makes me happy because that way he can help other teachers, but makes me sad that he's not like in the classroom anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was our, if you ever, have you ever seen Friday Night Lights, like the TV show? Yeah. Okay. He's like coach Taylor to a T. Um, but for that class, this is why it was super formative as freshmen, we had to turn in a two to four page essay every Friday, every Friday, a two to four page, I'm getting a double spaced essay. So, you know, it's probably only like 500 to a thousand words or something like that, which I like write in my sleep these days. But back then it was like, Oh my gosh, I have an essay due every Friday. Are you kidding me? So I would sit down on a Thursday night and type out a two to four page essay in like an hour. And I think at the time I was just like, you know, I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but I think it, looking back, it was kind of impressive that I was doing this as a freshman and I was starting to really like writing and writing quickly. And I was writing a blog regularly. And so, um, that was super formative freshman and sophomore year moving along. I, I, in third grade, remember praying with my Sunday school teacher, uh, praying the sinner's prayer. Um, I don't know if I was saved then or not. I think like a lot of people who maybe prayed the sinner's prayer as a child, you kind of wonder if you actually believed it or if you're just doing it. I, I don't know. You know, when, if I ever get to ask that of the Lord, I'll, I'll be, um, I, I'll genuinely wonder, ah, what, did, was I written in the Lamb's book of life or was I, yeah, was that, was that when it all happened or was it not? You know, I don't know. Um, but, cause my life didn't change. I remember genuinely wanting to be in a relationship with God, but I, I it's not like I, you know, um, started living for Jesus as a third grader when that happened. Um, and so come junior year of high school, I just went through some really tumultuous social stuff. Um, this girl I'd really liked, uh, basically stopped talking. She was like my best friend, but I also really liked her and she like stopped talking to me and it was like awful. I like, lost my best friend and also the prospect of a girlfriend. And it was, it was really hard. And I had some other social stuff. I'd quit the football team. And so I lost like a lot of that social sphere. I started a job that was really hard and stretching me. And so there was just, it was, I didn't have, I, I've not had a hard life, but as a junior in high school, there was just a lot of things that were hard. School was really hard at that stage. I was struggling in math, unsurprisingly. Um, and so it was just a hard year. And, and during that time, um, our pastor, our youth pastor was preaching through a number of different kind of topical series. And one of them was on worry and anxiety. Um, and I came across Matthew six about, um, you know, at the end there, where it's talking about, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of its own. Lord's going to clothe the, li- li- the lilies of the field. Won't he clothe you? Like that sort of thing. And I, mm-hmm. I realized that my God had kind of become my comfortable, like my, my friends or my kind of comfortable life that I was living that was neat and tidy and was free of any struggle. Um, and just kind of like said, Lord, I don't, I don't want to live that comfortable life anymore. First of all, it's gone, but I don't want to pursue that anymore. I want to find my contentment and comfort in you, not in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was really a moment where things started to change for me. Now I still was a junior in high school and went through all kinds of hiccups of, of a young Christian. Um, but that's when I would say like my trajectory really changed in terms of like, okay, I'm going to try to live for the Lord now, not just live for myself. And that was the first time I'd ever thought about anything like that really. Um, so that was junior year of high school, continued writing, uh, went and graduated. I was planning on going to Purdue for computer science, um, to kind of, cause I wanted to go into technology. I, I was on the, the school newspaper, was a editor there and also had like a tech column. I wrote a tech column for my school newspaper when the iPhone was announced in January, 2007. Um, so yeah, that's like, depending on how you're listening, you either think I'm old now, or you think, wow, you're young, um, <laughs> depending on the audience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I covered the iPhone release when I was a junior in high school in my school newspaper. Um, so like, I love that kind of stuff. And I was, I was always investigating, like I was on Twitter in 2007, um, which was like when it was first ever announced, I remember creating the account in my journalism class in high school. Mm. And so I was just super interested. And I was like, and also I was like, I can make a lot of money doing this kind of thing. These folks out at Google are making all kinds of money. Um, and so that was money. Like I still had this sort of idol of, of wealth at that point that, that the Lord had not taken away from me. Um, and so I was planning on doing computer science at Purdue. I went and 
applied and accepted and talked to the head of the department and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then I didn't love my visit at Purdue. I didn't love how big the campus was. And it was just super intimidating. I mean, I went to a massive public high school when I, I graduated with 600 other students. But like just this, my college being the size of a city, just like I was like, man, this seems overwhelming. I don't know. Um, at the same time, I realized how much math was involved in computer science. Like I realized that I, I like what my dad does. And I like the idea of working in tech as long as I don't have to use math. But I knew to get there, I would have to do math. And I was really struggling in math at the time and like just hated it. And so I was like, man, I really love what a computer science degree could get me in terms of a career. But I don't know if I could do four years of this, like calculus and stuff like this. Um, and so I was like, I think I should look at something else. And so someone encouraged me to look at a smaller school. And so I, um, I looked at Taylor University, which is a small Christian college, um, Christian liberal arts school near where I was living. If, if you've never heard of it, if anyone listening has never heard of it, I've said, have you heard of Wheaton? Yeah. Oh, it's like Wheaton, but in the middle of the cornfields in Indiana, that's basically what it is. Started out ma uh, majoring in English education, planning to be a high school English teacher, um, toward the end of my freshman year, I started reading like Christian books for the first time, like theology books and Christian living books. I had read like a couple in high school, crazy love, another one. Um, and, but I read, I was reading don't waste your life as a freshman in college. And, um, I found that I, the, I kind of felt this and some friends had saw this in me, but I was resisting what I was that, what I and others were seeing as a call to ministry of some kind. And um, uh, basically a, a handful of friends, including the woman who had let me down as a junior in high school, who is a friend at college and is now my wife. Um, she was like, Hey, me and other people think the Lord's calling you to ministry and you just need to stop being afraid and do it. And I was like, okay, I think you're probably right. I think I sensed that too. And, and I was reading Don't Waste Your Life. And there was a section in there that really was convicting me about the same thing. And so at the end of my freshman year, I kind of, uh, uh, in a cowardly way, I was, I was afraid to call my parents and tell them, hey, I think I'm going to change to a Bible major because they were paying for my school and I knew how hard it was. And, and they're, they're believers, but, but I knew that they were going to have the same fears about a Bible major as I did of like, what's this going to be, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, you know, they were hesitant, but supportive. And, um, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Really. I was like, if you get a Bible major, you're going to be a pastor or you're going to be a missionary. And I don't really want to go live somewhere else. Uh, so I guess I'm going to be a pastor, but I don't really know what that means. Like, I don't, I I'm assuming that's going to have to lead to me going to seminary or something, but I don't know. I just feel like I need to take the step of obedience. Basically, it's like how I felt, um, and so I changed my major to Bible, um, and at the end of my freshman year, finished out that degree a semester early in January of 2013. I officially graduated. Um, my wife, who was just my fiance at that point, finished out her degree. Uh, graduated May of 2013. Um, Ten years ago. Wow, ten years ago. And, um, we got married June 1st, 2013. And, um, I, we were planning on doing seminary in, uh, at Trinity outside of Chicago. Um, but I did not get the full ride that I was a finalist for. So that was a nope because that place was super expensive. And so I'd only been accepted to Southern seminary other than that. And so we, um, we're like, well, we don't know what we're going to do between now and the fall when I could theoretically start school. So we went and lived at a summer camp in Michigan that we'd worked at throughout college and they gave us a camper to live in for the summer. So my wife and I spent the first three months of our marriage living in a camper at a Christian summer camp, which was actually a blast because we had a bunch of friends who still worked there. Um, and so we did that throughout the summer, eventually um, applied for a job that was posted to Twitter uh, to manage the blog and social media of a guy named Ed Stetzer at Lifeway Christian Resources, which I had no idea what Lifeway was but I'd been reading Ed's blog throughout college when his blog is at Christianity Today. And so I, I knew who he was. Um, and so I was like, well, Nashville has a Southern Seminary extension campus. So I've already been accepted to the school. We were having trouble finding jobs in Louisville. This is like July. We were planning on moving like August. And my wife and I didn't know anybody in Louisville. We were planning on moving there for school, but I was like, we're not going to have a job. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. And then this job was posted to Twitter. I was like, well, I know how to run blog and social media. Uh, and I have a Bible degree. So I don't think Stetzer's probably looking for a 22-year-old kid who just graduated from college, but it's as good of a lead as we have of anything. And there's an extension campus there. And so I'll apply. 
So I applied and they got back to me immediately. I didn't even tell my wife I, I applied, which was a mistake, but I, you know, I was like two months <laughs> in marriage here. So give me a break. Um, we had literally never been to Nashville, either one of us ever. So, uh, so anyway, uh, applied, interviewed, got the job managing Stetzer's blog at CT and his social media. I was 22. We moved to Nashville Labor Day of 2013. Um, I ended up doing my MDiv through Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary instead of Southern because of a, we ended up going to a church here that was kind of set up as a mini extension campus for Southeastern. And then um, worked at Lifeway in a number of different roles over the course of about seven years. Uh, ended up in the last couple of years of my time there being head of social media at Lifeway. So I was head of social media at Lifeway, I'd like to say, and probably Lifeway's most tumultuous like three years of its existence. Uh, it we had we had election 2016. Uh, we had the closure of bookstores, uh, which I ran our social media during that whole situation, which was a nightmare. And then uh, coronavirus and a handful of very high profile controversies around authors and personalities affiliated with our publication, our publishing house and stores. So it was a very tumultuous time, but I was overseeing about 170 social media accounts and about 70 social media managers um, and living on social media all day, every day. It was around 2017, 2018. I started social media from more of a big picture perspective. Um, I read Postman's Abusing Ourselves to Death for the first time and was really blown away by how applicable this book from 1985 about the television written by a non-Christian was to how we should be viewing social media as Christians in the 21st century. And I said, man, I really wish Postman was still around to write about this today. And I did. I wasn't aware of who was writing. I knew of a lot of Christians writing on Christianity and tech generally, or even phones. But I didn't know many Christians. I was reading a ton of non-Christians writing for like the New York Times and other major outlets just talking about social media and internet culture. But I wasn't reading a lot of Christians talking about social media and internet culture. And those conversations are very different than conversations about phones. And so I was like, I feel like we could use a more Christian perspective on what social media is doing to us in a sort of Postman-esque way. Uh, and so I set out to do that in a, on a, across a few different avenues at first. And that all consolidated to in early 2020 kind of right before the pandemic started, I want to say it was like February-ish, I started this newsletter called Terms of Service, um, which is run through Substack. And um, yeah, so that's the writing bit. Around that same time, um, I left Lifeway because of a handful of things and um, thought I wanted to stay in Christian publishing because I had really found like, oh, this is a way I could use gifts and still like do ministry. And so mm. I was looking for a way to do ministry elsewhere. And I had a friend who worked at Moody Publishers and I was aware of Moody. Um, and, uh, and they said, Hey, we could really use your skill set for this role. And I was like, Hey, I'm happy to come help you guys out. And so that's how I ended up in the role that I'm in, um, which is, and it really was like, Hey, we want somebody who can live outside of the publishing process. Because everybody at Moody Publishers is like acquiring books to be published or designing books that are going to be published or printing books that are being published. Um, but nobody could really live outside of that process and kind of be the skunkworks guy, like the guy that says, hey, we've never tried this. Why don't we try this? Um, and that's kind of what I was hired to do. And because of my background in social and digital stuff, um, that's where we focused a lot of my energy right when I got here, which led to the creation of this website called BibleToLife.com. And so I can talk more about that, but it's not as pertain as much pertaining to the book. Back to the personal writing, continued writing with Terms of Service. That newsletter led to a publishing of a book by the same name, Terms of Service, in February of 2022. Febu that book, Terms of Service, was meant to be kind of a mirror. I call it like a mirror book. The purpose of that book is to say, what is my relationship with social media and what is that relationship doing to me? Like, what is my relationship with social media doing to me? It's really for anybody and everybody. In fact, I wrote it such that my Christian worldview is present, but I wanted it to be accessible to a non-Christian. So I, I didn't like, it's not like a theology of social media. It's more just like, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. That should be clear. But just from a very broad perspective, why, why are we obsessed with social media? What's that doing to us? Um, that led to a lot of feedback that said, hey, this book is good, but we could use one for leaders specifically and Christian leaders. And so I said, yeah, I think you're probably right. So I got an agent and I started talking about, hey, I think there's a need for this book. He agreed. We came up with a proposal for a book for Christian leaders of various kinds, whether it's a parent, 
a lay leader or pastor, somebody who's really actively discipling someone else, which should be all of us, but you know, someone who's discipling someone else uh, and who recognizes that social media is maybe a more formative discipleship force in the lives of the people they care about than they are or than scripture is. And uh, let's write a book for those people who want to know how to kind of push back the discipleship power of social media and replace it with scripture and, and the Holy Spirit. And so hmm. that's what we set out to do with the wolf in their pockets. And that was a very kind of long, but still seems abbreviated uh, lead up to how we got to where we are. <laughs> and I, I want to delve into the wolf in our pockets. I, I actually had Moody approach me about, about, you know, reading the book and I, I hadn't heard of you. Um, and I thought, but the Most concept, people have it. well, but the concept was something that I, I was interested in because We've had Jay Kim on here. We've had Felicity Wu's song. We've talked about the power of media and how it is forming us. And one of the things that we do try to talk about on the show is spiritual formation. And oftentimes when people think of spiritual formation, they think of being in a small group or being at church and hearing the Bible preached, but they don't often realize how much the technology and the social media that we're in today is actually forming them spiritually. And this is why I think I enjoyed this book. I didn't know exactly what to expect, but I was very pleasantly surprised. And I, I, I enjoyed the book tremendously. I, I have to say that because this is where people are living day in and day out. And having been a pastor for over 20 years in a variety of different situations from the very birth of social media and seeing it take place in church, uh, I went into pastoral ministry in the late 90s. And then uh, it wasn't really a thing yet. I was there when people started getting on Facebook, but only a few were. And then more and more and more. And then the next thing I know, we're having meetings as staff to talk about the post of someone in the church and how we were going to handle it. And I went, wait, when did that happen? When I didn't take a class in this. And then the reaction of some was to just get off of social media. Let's not be on it, but it's here to stay. It's here to stay. People are involved in it. And even the title of your book, you said the wolf in their pockets, which automatically brings to mind this, this picture of, of really the, the demonic in a way, in a way of the devil getting into our lives. And, and I, I feel the same way. I, I remember I have teenagers and I remember when we first got married, I was saying to my wife, my children will never have a television in their room. And then suddenly they get phones because it was advantageous. Their friends had it. It was an easy way for me to pick them up. And we know just the, the, the easy steps to bring it in. And then they're in it and we see them in it 24 seven. And even now when I take my son to school, there's a, a bus stop we drive by with all of these teenagers and all of them are staring at their phones, whether it's, and it depends on the, the, the platform. Some are Instagram, some are discord, some are like, that's my son's preferred platform where mine would be Facebook. My wife is Instagram. My editor is Twitter. I mean, all of these different, these different pieces, but you give us some guidelines and you, and you, you mentioned the subtitle of the book is 13 ways the social internet threatens the people that you lead. And I, I wanted to explore this because you, you, your, your uh, chapter titles were very brief, but that you get an idea. Dethrone entertainment, recover purpose, build friendships, reorder priorities, foster discernment, seek humility, live peaceably, kill cynicism. I'm going to go through all of them anyway. Rethink authority, understand sex, grapple with anxiety, reject conspiracy theories, and redirect worship. I remember reading the table of contents going, okay, where is he going to go? And then right from the get-go, you go for the jugular in, in dethrone entertainment. And you mentioned that that entertainment has become almost part and parcel of the worship. I mean, we even talk about the worship experience today. How has, let's let's start there because that kind of lives lays a baseline for where we're at right now. We have started to basically merge church in the Sunday morning with entertainment and why is that a bad thing start there uh yeah because we're made to cultivate in worship not consume worship that's the real reason i think that like the core my church that i go to here outside nashville we have a number of like values pillars i think we call them that are like promises we make to one another and you can i can tell already just by saying this that we do a good job of reminding each other of them because uh I'm sure other churches I've attended have had values like this and I could never have told you them, but we recite like at the, in our benediction at the end of our service every Sunday, somebody kind of reminds us of one of them. And um, the one from this past week was the reminder that we are, that we promise to cultivate, not consume in the worship gathering. 
Um, and so I think, you know, I, I grew up in a church that I love. I don't want to dog them. They, they were very important to my formative spiritual development. Um, but like, you know, I would show up to church on Sunday and I think a lot of people can, can, uh, align with this. They understand what I'm talking about. Show up to church on Sunday. Uh, you walk in, you sit wherever you want. You stand up when instructed to do so. You sing, perhaps you're, maybe you're singing, you're like, oh, the bands, they sound nice or they're, they're great. Or maybe, maybe you're a good Christian and you're like, and you don't really care how the band sounds. You're just engaging in, in worshiping the Lord in that moment. Um, you know, like I, I, I say good Christian tongue in cheek. Like I'm, I'm, uh, I find myself paying attention to the band as much as I do pay attention to the actual words I'm singing. So I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's bad, but, um, but you know, you, you engage with the, the singing, you sit down, you laugh at the pastor's joke to say, Oh, that's some wise, that's some interesting insight. Good sermon pastor. You leave, you go home, you come back for the same thing next week. And it's just a sort of event. That's a very typical, I think American Christian experience. Um, I think that's the kind of church I grew up in that I spent a lot of time in over the years. And I think that can, that can, the Lord, the Lord can work through those worship environments. I don't think they're like inherently wrong. However, I look at that compared to like the worship environment that our elders set up for us today in our church. And we come in um, every Sunday. uh, Basically there are people like our greeters are handing out cards that have different parts of the liturgy, I guess we're, we're Southern Baptist church, but we have some high church elements, I guess you could say at our church um, where that have like the opening scripture reading that have the scripture that comes after our time of confession. Um, historically we've had somebody go up who's been assigned to go up and recite the apostles, like lead us in reciting the apostles creed. And we have somebody who's assigned to read that, find out that pillar at the end to remind us of what we've promised to do as church members and, and our benediction first. And so we come in, um, someone has been randomly asked by being handed a card. I, it's, it's a church member who's asked. We don't ask like guests to get up on stage and read a verse, but a church, a church member is asked to read an opening verse. Um, when we do communion, uh, which is a couple times a month, I think, um, we stand around in a circle and a church member is asked to lead us in a prayer. Like in, in we have like little groups around the room that stand around that, that stand in a circle and take the elements together in like a small group setting. Um, we confess silently and then someone else gets up and reads a prayer of, con- uh, 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 you know, a prayer of confession for us. And, and like a, a uh, reminder that we've been, that we've been forgiven from scripture. Um, and then the, the benediction at the end, all of this is to say, there's a sort of interactive environment in the current church, the Sunday worship gathering that I'm a part of that I've never experienced before. And I never really realized what I was lacking until I started experiencing this because I participate in the worship gathering in a way we as a body participate in the worship gathering in a way that no church I've ever been a part of does. You, you participate in the worship gathering in, a, in the minds of a lot of people if you're on stage singing or preaching, um, otherwise you're there as an, as an audience in a way, obviously you and I and others listening probably know that's not the right way to think of it, but I think it would be fair to say that a lot of folks who show up on Sunday do think of it that way. But I think to the degree that we can, as church leaders set up worship experiences, if you want to use that word, worship environments in such a way that, that we interact more than we consume, that we cultivate more than we consume. Um, we might, we might kind of ignite a fire for worship in a way that hearing other people worship and lead and preach simply doesn't. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, it, I, it yeah, it does. I actually, I'm very intrigued because uh, we just had Jeff Christopherson. And I'm not exactly sure if I'm writing this episode before him or after him, but he's the head of the uh, Canada Baptist Convention. Basically, it's the Southern Baptist equivalent in in uh, Canada. Helped start Send, and he created the Church Multiplication Institute. He wrote a novel called Once You See. And in it, he basically uncovers how our modern conception of church within the North American setting, pastors have become basically Sunday morning only in that everything is geared to the Sunday morning experience. 
And anything outside of that doesn't, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to shepherd. They really don't know how to do formation. It sounds like your church is actually doing that, which is an encouragement because I, I do think as you've written, entertainment has become the name of the game because it's a competition for, in some respect, attendance and eyeballs. And that's what we've seen done. If you tried to to not be quote unquote professional, and I'm not writing in the sense of John Piper's, we are not professionals, but to have your Sunday experience, just this mom and pop getting up there doing weird stuff, you're not, no one's going to come. It, it's just the reality of the situation. If you don't have some, and I, I even hate to use the word professionalism, but you know, it's done well, let's just say with excellence. However, with the advent of technology, the more that it's become ubiquitous and people have become more aware of that, and that has tripled in, as you said, tripled into the church. And now we're not consumers. We are, how did you put it? You said, we're not consumers, but we are. We cultivate, we don't consume. That's right. We are cultivate, not consume. And I, I remember you writing about that actually in the book. Because as you said before, you're not just writing this to everyday people. While it can be, you're writing this to help leaders understand how to push back against the formation that they're experiencing. And in some ways, as Trevin Wax said, when he was on the show, we were talking about this where he said, Disney has, we become conveyors, but they've also become, they're representing the culture, but they're also creating and cultivating the culture. And I think that's the same idea. By imbibing the entertainment aspect within that purpose, we're actually conveying a meaning. And this goes back to the Neil Postman idea of amusing ourselves to death. We are communicating meaning and not even realizing it. And you, you bring that out and how it actually is forming us. And I found myself time after time in your book, uh, going through it, just kind of nodding to myself going, okay, okay, okay. But you also bring it into terms that I thought were very understandable. I mean, even at the onset, and we're going back a little bit in your book, but you mentioned that social media today is the high school hallways of yesterday. Describe what you mean by that. Because I think some of our people are even now hearing it are turning their heads and going, wait, what? What? Because they understand that they feel that, but that's not something necessarily that they put together and equated with social media, but how is social yeah. media become the high school hallways of today? Yeah. Let me go back to the entertainment thing. I have one more thing to say, oh, and then sure. we'll go to go high school it. hallways. The um, yeah, Trev is exactly right. And he's a friend of mine, really my biggest professional mentor. And we go to lunch once a month. He lives like a couple miles away from me and, and he's awesome. I saw you had him on and that's awesome. He's great. Brilliant, brilliant dude. And, and just super kind. Um, so the, 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 a couple things about entertainment and then we'll move on. Um, I think of play stupid games, win stupid prizes uh, is the first thing I think of when you try to compete in entertainment as a church. Now we're getting into uh, ministry philosophy. And so I don't want to step on no, any no, toes and I apologize. No, dude, and I'm not a pastor, don't, but don't uh, step on toes, kick shins. Let's uh, do yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Go for the um, knee. <laughs> it, it, uh, the best way to win the church entertainment game is to refuse to play. And so the, um, that's like war games. Like that's right. Remember that the, refuse to yeah. play. Yeah. Tic-tac-toe the, classic. Um, that's not a game you want to win because when you win, you, you, you lose. Yes, exactly. In the long run. In the long that's run. That's right. And so I think of Moneyball. If you, anyone listening has ever seen Moneyball, have you ever seen Moneyball? I've never seen Moneyball. I'm not okay. a baseball guy, but that's okay. okay. But you'll, you'll like, it's a good movie, even if you don't care about baseball, because it, at the core of it, and it's a great book, even if you don't like baseball, it's just a, yeah, anyway, at the core of it is the Oakland Athletics could never beat the New York Yankees if they tried to build a team like the New York Yankees by paying players tens of millions of dollars because they didn't have the money. So they had to figure out a different way to win the game. And that's where they pursued players who nobody knew that weren't going to draw eyeballs, but they knew how to get on base. And they, they started playing a different game. We have to do this as, as Christian publishers a good bit to give some insider baseball on this. Like at Moody Publishers, we don't have the money of like a Thomas Nelson or these other massive publishers that have like New York publishing house money behind them. So like, we're not going to be able to attract authors that are going to be able to sell a million books the first month their book comes out because we don't have the money to pay them up front or we're not, we're not going to play that game. So we have to figure out a different game to play, if you will. It goes back to... It, the same principle applies to churches. I think like you don't want to try to play the super hype worship experience game because it's a not worth winning. And even if you could maybe win it, it's not, it's not the message you want to communicate. So I, I could keep going there, but that's not the point of my book, my, my writing. And that's not my expertise to the point of high school hallways. Um, this really comes from Derek Thompson in his book, Hitmakers. Um, which is a tremendous book from 
number of years ago, I want to say like 2017, about really why things are popular. Everything from why certain music is popular to why things go viral on the internet. Um, and he talks about how, you know, back when we were in high school, um, even me, even though social media was kind of becoming a thing when I was in high school, we didn't have it in our pockets really until that iPhone came out when I was a junior, but most of my friends didn't even have one of those. Um, you know, you could, the high school hallway was like the performance runway of, you know, it's like the model runway of social performance where, uh, you know, in class, theoretically, you're paying attention in class or doing work. There's socialization to be sure, but it's really when you went from class to class or even when you were in the lunchroom where you were performing socially or when you go to a football game on a Friday night or other extracurricular function, that's when you're performing socially. That's when you, um, you know, you're trying to get girls to like you, get boys to like you, you're trying to make friends, you know, all of that kind of get more social standing. And, but when you went home, certainly for you, when given, given your age and when you would have been in high school, but also for me, even though I did have the internet and social media at home, when you're at home, you got to kind of let your hair down socially, like the social pressures that were present in the high school hallway kind of stayed at school or at yeah. least, yeah. you know, you would, you would have to go back and re-engage them at that football game when you went to it or, or whatever. Um, but you got to kind of be yourself at home. There was no pressure to perform socially once you enter the door of your house until the next time you went to another school function. Today, people, teens in particular, are carrying the high school hallway around in their pocket 24-7 and they're being beckoned to perform at all times. This is why I think as Jonathan Haidt has so masterfully demonstrated over the course of the last few years, that anxiety is a skyrocketing among teenagers, but especially among teenage girls is, is not because of body image or whatever. I mean, those are all, all kind of can be factors, but it's this idea that we're carrying the high school hallways around in our pockets at all times. And to use it and an idea from a different book, um, there's no backstage where we can just retreat and kind of let our hair down and be ourselves. We must always be out on stage under the hot lights performing for people, or we feel that way. Now adults feel that to some extent, but teenagers feel that in a whole other way because of the sort sort of social pressure to perform. Um, and so I think if we want to look at, you know, if you're in youth ministry, this is something you definitely need to be attuned to. But I think it, like I said, I think it pertains to adults as well. And I think we make a mistake if we, relegate this matter to the youth room uh, entirely. And so I think we should be aware of social media is like the high school hallway. We carry it around in our pockets at all times. And we feel this sort of pressure to perform, even if we wouldn't acknowledge it. I think a lot of times we do feel it. Our phones are everywhere. We're never not connected anymore. Most of us check our phones before we do anything. And that includes going to the bathroom in the morning. I mean, it really doesn't matter if it's Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever they're calling it now, Instagram, TikTok, Discord, or whatever other platform that you're on. We are being formed by what Chris calls the social internet. From the way that we view worship to the way we present ourselves online and what we aspire to, we have to admit and acknowledge that all of these forces are shaping us. Chris is absolutely right. We all need places and spaces where we can go and just be. And that includes church, by the way, where there's no pressure to perform, to be accepted, to look a certain way, to sound a certain way. We need to be around authentic Christians and be an authentic Christian community where it's being modeled for us on what it means to be a true follower of Jesus in the midst of this world. And we can't get that online, no matter how hard we try, or at least not all that we need to be. Being in community matters, and having right practices and behaviors modeled is absolutely crucial, as our conversations with Jim Wilder have shown us. Look, I'm not saying you have to get rid of all your social media, because I think it's here to stay. We're not saying give it all up, and neither is Jesus. But we need to be aware of just how much it's actually forming us and is causing us to be slaves. And we need to build the structures in our lives that correct and shape us when our social media uses us. That's why I recommend a digital fast, plugging it in at a different place. I would also recommend checking out Andy Crouch's books on the subject because they help open your eyes to the practices that you need to put into your life so that you might show that you're not a slave to the phone and the internet. We do need to be aware of how much it's forming and shaping us. And you can tell that this is a very complex issue. And just a reminder, 
Won't you consider becoming one of our watering partners to help water faith around the world? Simply click the link in your show notes and select the amount that works for you. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And